we are beginning a, a new series. And uh, now that we're moving out, out of the winter months, I've noticed that it's not just as dark as quickly. You can see, see already that it's starting to get a wee bit lighter, a wee bit quicker, uh, for a wee bit longer each time. And we're getting to that wonderful time of the year, springtime, a time of new life and, and lambs being born and flowers budding. And it's also that time of year where we make that annual purge on our homes called the spring clean. Now, spring cleaning happens more dramatically in uh, countries that will have more extreme weather. So uh, northern parts of America, Canada, Scandinavia, uh, where um, you get really, really hard, difficult winters. And then spring is a big turnaround. It's a big difference. Not like here where it's just miserable for 49 weeks. And then you get that one week in May when all the kids are doing their exams. And then it's, uh, and that's it. The reason a spring clean is that big annual purge on our homes is because of the harshness of winter. Because of the difficultness and the coldness of the conditions, winter leaves a mess behind. Once the snow leaves and all that wee residue and scale, all that stuff, the paths need power hosed and the windows need a real good cleaning and, and little jobs get stockpiled in the house because it was too wintry to do them and uh, the storms maybe have done damage and so the spring clean is a chance to get the house back in order we will decide right that chair of the ironing is going to get sorted those stairs are not going to become the shelving again that they are now becoming we're going to sort out the attic we're going to clean out the garage and you think right it's spring here we go and it's true in our own lives as well. When we are going through the tough times in our lives, the wintry times, the stormy times, we tend not to really deal with some of the things that we really ought to be dealing with. We tend to put some of our, our problems, some of our, our things, just to the side a wee bit, and we kind of build up around it because circumstances are too cold. They're too difficult. And so we put them to one side, and we need to then come spring once the winter, once the storm has passed, to do our own internal spring clean, which is the title of our, of our new series. And while I know that most men will see us and think, Jeff, you are killing me here. You know I'm going to have to spend next Saturday cleaning out the garage now. All I wanted to do was come to church and get some brownie points, and now you've tied up my weekend for the next couple of weeks. Thanks, Jeff. I don't like you anymore. Well, look, the idea of this series is the internal spring clean. So if you are being coerced against your will, then what you need to say is, honey, you know I love you. But I have to work on the inside first before I worry about the outside spring clean. And that will maybe buy you a week or two, at least until the Six Nations is over. <laughs> My wife just walked back in from crash there, so I, <laughs> I'm caught out. But it's okay, you've got time. So in this series, the idea is that we're going to picture our lives as a house. Different rooms in the house will represent different aspects and different parts of, of our lives. And we're going to look at maybe some of the issues that we allow to stockpile, that we allow to maybe go unchecked. And okay, now is the time for the sprinkling. We're going to deal with some of these things that maybe we just let slip because we're going through a storm. We're going through a wintry period. But now it's time. And this is no, let, let, let's clean this out. 
Let's make more room for Jesus. Let's get rid of some of the stuff that isn't so valuable, that isn't so meaningful, that is just messing and cluttering up our lives so that there's more room for what is important and precious and real and beautiful. This morning, we're going to be starting with our foundations, but tonight, I want to let you know what we're doing tonight. Tonight, we're going to be looking at uh, the, the office or, or the library or the study, whatever you want to call your wee nook where you do your reading and your paperwork. And we're going to be looking at, at our mind. Specifically, we're going to talk about anxiety and, and dealing with anxiety and how, how to cope with anxiety. Um, and I sent an email to some of the, the music folks um, it was going to be one night, but it's probably going to be developed over, over the next two Sunday nights, that idea of anxiety. And so if you um, are a warrior, if you know people who are warriors or, 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 or fighting that or, and, and looking at that, come th- tonight, next Sunday night, we'll be dealing with that. Um, it's a very complex issue, and so we'll not be sorting it all out, but we'll be looking at, at some of the things that the Bible says that we can do to fight against anxiety. So that will be um, next two Sunday nights. Spring cleans can be difficult. They can be hard, but they bring big results. There's nothing more satisfying than when you've cleaned out the garage and it was a complete disaster beforehand and you can see the floor again. There's wall space, all the tools are where they ought to be. There's something very satisfying about getting the job done or you clean out all your kitchen cupboards or you, you, whatever job it happens to be, you get it done and it's satisfying. So this could be difficult, the, the, the series for some people, but the idea is to address the niggly little things that we've put off dealing with because it's perhaps too uncomfortable to deal with there and then. But what we find is that perhaps in our pursuit of an easy option or being comfortable, we're now starting to get uncomfortable because we've made too many compromises, we've made too many wee changes, and we need to deal with it. That's the spring clean. So Matthew chapter 7 is where we're going to, and we're breaking in at verse 24. Now, this is the close of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and verse 14, we see a series of contrasts from verse 14 through there's all these contrasts. Jesus has told us in verse 1 to judge not, lest we be judged also by the standard that we are judging others. The idea is, you don't know what's going on with other people. We, we, can, we can have an idea, we can judge them off one, one off attributes or activities, but ultimately, we don't know what's going on with people. We have to leave that with God. Okay, And, and so somebody could genuinely be doing the best that they can, so don't you come and boot them when they are maybe struggling and, and kick them when they're down. The Christian army is, is very bad at stabbing its own soldiers in the back. We don't need to do that, okay? But instead, don't judge others. But then he does give us a series of, of realizations that there are contrasts. This world, this kingdom that Christ is bringing in is a series of, of proofs to remind us that God is very much aware of where people are in relation to him. So it's not up to us to judge, because it's like over time, it will be revealed. And so we've got uh, two gates with two ways and two destinations. We've got two kinds of trees producing two kinds of fruit. We've got two builders with two different foundations. And verse 21 will say, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will get into the kingdom. I think that has to be one of the scariest verses in all of Scripture. People who think that they're saved, people who think that they're going to heaven are going to get to the pearly gates and say, look, I don't know who you are. You don't belong here. 
That's scary. That's scary to live your life thinking, <coughs> excuse me, to live your life thinking, I'm sorted, I'm going to heaven. To realize, no, you're on the wrong path. You're producing the wrong fruit. That's difficult. The idea is that a faith that maybe looks the part on the surface but doesn't have the reality, that has the appearance but not the substance, is not a saving faith. So that's the context of these verses as we go into verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, Jesus speaking, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it hadn't been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So where better to start our spring clean than in the basement, uh, in the foundations, as it were. Now, I know most houses don't have basements these days, but don't let a metaphor get in the way of a good sermon, okay? Just... You'll tie yourself up in knots in this series, okay, if you get too pernickety about that, okay? We tend to get the, take the foundations for granted in our houses. Uh, we don't tend to think about them unless something goes wrong with them, and by that stage, it's too late, okay? Foundations are important, but we don't think about them all that often. Now, whenever Ruth and I were moving house, uh, October, November 17, um, one of the things that held up getting the keys from the bank was that the checks uh, that they insist are being done, they wanted to make sure the foundations were right. They wanted to make sure all these different things were, were in the right order. It's important to get the foundations right. I was speaking uh, youth quick a couple of Friday nights ago, and I was talking on the subject. So what I, I did was I, I took the youth group, a bunch of kids, and I split them up into groups of three or four, and then put a leader in each one. I gave them what, 20 or 30 bits of paper, and a roll of cell tape and says, right, build me a tower. Build me a tower. And so we got some very interesting engineering feats. Um, some really interesting engineering feats. But the idea was saying, look, guys, you're young, so don't worry about what your life is going to grow up to look like. Don't worry if it's going to be big and flamboyant. Don't worry about how, if you scale all the heights. Don't worry about who you're going to marry or what job you're going to do. Don't worry about all those things. The important thing is when you're building a tower, you want to make sure it can stand. And so you need to make sure you've got the foundations right. When the foundations are right, don't worry about the rest of it because it will stand. You get the foundations wrong. It doesn't matter what the rest looks like. It's always going to fall when you don't have the right foundations. And Jesus is closing the Sermon on the Mount, and he's making this point. Two people can build two houses, the same storm can come and hit it, but it's the foundation that makes the difference to how the story ends for each person. So let's start our spring clean in the basement. Let's make sure there is nothing that hinders the foundations that we build our lives on, that it is in fact Christ that we're building on, and not just something that looks like Christ, because sometimes we're very good at that. Well, I go to church. I have this religious life. I, I, I do these things, and we have a religious, but it's not actually on Christ that your life is built on. That house will still fall. So Jesus says, okay, the first thing you need to do is look at the two houses. Now, if you're anything like me, 
when you're in Sunday school, you probably got a picture like that, where some guy has built uh, a house out of concrete uh, up on the, the, the rock face, and it's strong and it's standing, and then some guy is on Benoan Beach underneath, and he, his house is made out of like wood or something. You know, it's like you're waiting for the third little piggy to build a house out of straw somewhere. I was like, no, that's not the picture. That's not the picture. That's a bad picture. That, because what Jesus wants you to imagine is two identical houses, two identical houses side by side on the same street, right beside each other. They, they've got, they're built out of the same materials. They've got the same size, the same structure. The only difference is what's underneath. The only difference is the foundation. It's like what God told Samuel. He says, look, man looks on the outward appearances, but God looks on the heart. God says, look, no, I, I look at the foundations. I look at what your life is built on. And so the idea this morning is we want to look a wee bit deeper to the places that only God can see, the places that only you can see. I don't know who I'm necessarily speaking to this morning, but you know. And that's the foundation. That's where the real difference is. Never be content to say, well, I looked the part. Never be content to say, well, I must be okay then because I'm doing the same things as other people that I can see are doing. No, 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 no. Look deeper and see what is my life truly built on. Is it okay just to say, for me to live is Christ? Because let's be honest, folks, we try to build our lives on so many other things, even as Christians. Even as Christians, we try to build our lives on so many other things. We build our lives on our jobs. And this is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I earn. Or we build our lives on our identity around our social circle and our popularity. Or we build our emotions, our, our, we build our lives around our, our emotions, how we feel. I want to feel good. And we put that right at the center. And so what we do, everything we do is built upon making ourselves feel good, making ourselves feel important, making ourselves feel nice or comfortable or important, whatever it happens to be. And effectively, maybe there's a wee twist every now and again, but ultimately we're building our lives and our identity around the same things that every single unsaved person out there is building their life on. Because they want to feel good. They want to feel important. They want to feel... It's the same thing. And so it's worth asking, do you think you can say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Can I, is that what our life is built on? As far as you're concerned, is he worthy of having first place in your heart? Is he worth it? Is he worth putting everything else be secondary to him? Is he so beautiful, so holy, so precious, so powerful, so amazing that says, I'm going to give him my best. I don't care about anything else or anyone. I'm going to give him first. I'm going to give him my best. I'm going to give him my all. Is he worthy of my honor? Is he worthy of all my praise? Is he worthy of that? Do I really believe that he's worthy? Is he trustworthy enough to build it all on him? Or do I still need to make sure that I'm going to do what makes me feel good. I'm going to do what makes me feel important. I'm going to do what makes me feel special. But I tell you, he is. He is worthy. And I, I used to struggle with this a uh, big time. 
this idea of having God first and then trying to decide what order everything else needs to come in beyond that. You know, okay, right, well, my wife should come second. Oh, but now I've got kids. Do my kids come second or, or third? Or, you know, am I allowed to have joint seconds? Or, or, you know, what way does that order? And then, okay, does church come forth? Church come forth. Or should, should my work, my friends, my friends, but what friends? Do I have to put them individually in order? Or, or like, you know, what happens if church doesn't make top 10? Am I a bad Christian because I've got friends? Or I'm proud? And I struggle. I didn't like this idea of ranking things. And, and, I, and it's because I genuinely believe that God does not ask us to do that. The idea of him being the foundation, the idea of him being at the center of our lives, I think is the same idea as having the sun at the center of the solar system. So, yeah, thanks, guys. You see, there's absolutely nothing wrong with having all these different things in our lives rotating around. The question is, what do you rotate your life around? See, the sun keeps everything else in balance, keeps the other things in the right orbit. And all the while brings life and light and warmth to all the things that orbit around it. And I think whenever Jesus says, I need to be the foundation... It's the same as saying, I need to be at the center. And it doesn't really matter what orbit everything else has. And sometimes things will go closer to the sun and further away as, as times and seasons imp- impact and dictate. But ultimately, Christ is at the center. And everything else that's going on in our lives, friendships change, priorities change as we get older, as we, you know, whatever happens to be. But all the while, all the while, there is that life and light and warmth of God shining on all those things that we're there because he's at the center. He's the one thing that never changes and doesn't move, but everything will work around that. I think that's the call, not to rank the aspects of our lives around him or below him, but to make sure that everything that we're doing orbits around him rather than him having to orbit around the things that's going on in our lives. And doing youth work for long enough, I saw young people make their faith rotate around their boyfriend or their girlfriend. It was a disaster. Never worked. I've seen people rotate God around their job. The results were no better. I see people all the time, even still, trying to rotate everything around their feelings. God, you can maybe come and go as long as I'm feeling good, as long as I'm feeling comfortable, as long as I get what I want. Just like that's... That's not the right way. It's a recipe for disaster. And so as we start our spring clean, let's start by examining our foundations. Over the wintry, stormy times in our, mo- in our lives, we have maybe shifted our emphasis or, or our identity or our weight over to something less. It's something easier. It's something more convenient because it helps us get us through. But now it's time to get back to getting those foundations right. Jesus says, look at the house that's been built Look under the house, but also look ahead. There's a storm that is coming, and the same storm is going to hit both houses. And the reality is that it's the storm that tests the merits of the house. Whenever there's no storm, there's no problem with all the different foundations. You build your life on this, you build your life on that. That's fine. Well, there's no problems. It's fine when everything's going easy for us. It's different whenever the storms come. Now, there is a debate among the commentators 
about what this storm that hit the houses represents. Some will say it's the common everyday trials and problems that we face throughout our lives, whether it's a recession, whether it's a, a unemployment or, or health or whatever it happens to be. Others will say no. Given the context of the chapter and what Christ is speaking on, this storm represents the judgment that we will face in the end, where we have to stand before God and give an account of our lives and what is truly done for him will be uh, left and, and everything else will burn up like wood hen stubble. And I tend to fall on that side of the argument myself. Um, there's no doubt in my head that people with everyday trials and difficulties and problems can fake it. And their life doesn't fall apart like the house. And they somehow manage to survive. I'm convinced that there are people who can weather the storms without having Jesus as their foundation. They get through. Now, every person who's not a Christian out in this world is, 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 is having a nervous breakdown or, or falling apart. Okay, so I don't think it would be right to try and say that that, that is the case. But I am absolutely convinced, without a doubt, that no one will be able to con God at the end of their life. When the time for judgment comes and we have to give an account for our lives, give an account for our priorities, the list of, that of things that we do and have said will not necessarily be the first bits of evidence brought against us, but rather the foundations of our heart. Where were our affections really set? Where, what were the great loves of our life? Looking the part will not be good enough then. Only those whose foundation is Christ, only those whose life truly orbited Christ at the center will remain standing. Now, if you're on the same path and you're tracking with me on this, and you're feeling the same way that I was feeling whenever I was writing this on Monday, you're, I was terrified, okay? <laughs> I kind of going, oh, this, this isn't a good sermon. This, isn't, this is really terrible. I don't want to feel like this because the instinctive response of my soul was to shrivel up and go, I'm doomed. There's no way I can be good enough now. There's no way I can ever match this because in my heart, I don't know about you, this is me talking about as far as I'm concerned, there's always this wrestling for control of the throne of my heart. There's always a struggle. Second like episode of Game of Thrones, it's just there's always this fighting and struggling and warring for control and, and, and authority in my heart. Even though my head can know something, it doesn't mean it's the reality in my heart. And I think because we all fight and wrestle for the supremacy of God in our lives, I think we get to something like this and we all feel that we're disqualified. I think we all get to a point where we just think, well, if that's the standard, then I can't say that I'm there. So let me take you where my heart instinctively led me as I was reading this and, and my heart soared when I was reading this. This is Psalm 34. Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me, and I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord judges, condemns, 
kicks you. No, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Amen, 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 amen. Because you're feeling brokenhearted by wrestling for your foundations. You're feeling crushed because the same temptations and the same fights are always taking you over. And you're feeling that this morning and you're feeling crushed and you're feeling brokenhearted and you're feeling low. It's the same battles every day and it's the same battles every week and you come finding yourself in the same territory time and time and time and time and time again. The Lord is near. Amen. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. This is still Psalm 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. The righteous. The righteous. We struggle. We fight. The battles are real. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. So you don't get yourself out of it. The Lord gets you out of it. He's the one who delivers. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. Notice that. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but we come through. The unrighteous don't. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. And none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. He will redeem your life. And none who take refuge in him will be condemned. Here's what my heart heard from the Lord whenever I read these verses. It's not too late to get things back to the way they ought to be. as I was wrestling with feeling insignificant and feeling like a bad Christian, feeling unworthy, having Christ at the center so inconsistently, it's not too late. I'm near. Let's get it right. Let's put it right. This is why we take the time for a spring clean. The mess builds up and we stop paying attention. And, and little wee changes that we made to get through and to survive. All of a sudden we realize, okay, now we need to get it right. Now we need to put it right. We need to get our house back in order. Folks, if your foundation isn't right, there is time to put it right. And you will find that he is not far from you in this process, but rather the Lord is near. The Lord is near. So look for him, look to him. And I think traditionally when people, you know, had basements and cellars and things like that, it's where all the rubbish was dumped and all the different things went. And, but when you go down into the cellar, you go into the basement, you find boxes of the school yearbooks, you find photo albums, you find record collections. Uh, young people, I'll tell you what records are later. It's a long story. Or wedding dress. And I think some of these things that we find down here aren't rubbish at all. They're precious. But we maybe felt that we didn't have a use for them. But so often whenever we clear out the foundations, we rediscover precious things that we had forgotten about. And listen, I, there's maybe folks this morning and you're still fighting against everything that I'm saying. And you're fighting hard to reject everything that you're hearing from me this morning because you've got zero intention of going near your foundation. Jeff, I am happy. Leave me alone. I don't want to fight this. I'm not going down there. I'm not doing this. But I'm telling you, see if you're saved. Get down into the basement and you might just rediscover some wonderful truths and precious promises that will lift you and fill you again. And you'll not worry about the fact that you've forgotten about them for so long, but rather you will be rejoicing in the savoring of them once more. 
I, I love the book of Romans. It's, it's a deep book, but I, I love it because throughout the book, there are these deep, profound thoughts. And then just immediately after, there's just these eruptions of joy. I love that. Romans 12 is a perfect example, but verse 2 is where I want to draw your eye. Now, bear in mind, bear in mind, he is writing to Christians. He is writing to believers. He's not telling people who want to be saved, who ought to be saved, or anything. He's writing to believers. He's speaking to saved people, and he says to the, the Christians in Rome, don't be conformed to this world. Christian, stop trying to live like they do, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you might discern what is the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. Even as Christians, the Bible is recognizing that it is hard to fight to keep our foundations anchored in Christ. That there is this fight and this war for our hearts and our affections to mold us and to shape us either to be more like Christ or to be more like the world. And there's always that same fight to conform into how everyone else is doing things, how everyone else is thinking, how everyone else's ambitions and goals and principles. But the call is rather than just fighting against being like the world, the call is to then fight for allowing God to transform how we think and how we process the world around us. That happens at the foundations. That's the foundations. Can I finish very quickly with four quick bullet points for anyone who's not sure how to go about this? Some of you have been saved and you know exactly what to do. You just don't want to do it. I can't help you this morning. I can't help you. That's something that you're going to need to figure out and, and explain to God. Say, God, like, I just didn't think you were worthy. I just didn't think you were worthy. I didn't think you were that precious. I didn't think you were that wonderful. I didn't think you were that amazing. So I never bothered building my life on you. That's something you have to do. I can't help you with that. If you can't see him for who he is, you need to do that. But there's some who are maybe saved not that long, who are new to their faith, and you can't figure out exactly how to go about it. Let, let me remind you of a couple of simple truths. Number one, God loves baby steps. He loves baby steps. Fight for your heart and mind. It'll be a constant one. Uh, and I could get people up here who've been saved 20, 30, 40, 50 years. They'll still tell you the fight still goes on. But you have a Father in heaven who loves each and every step that you take. Regardless of how big those steps are or how many times you fall over in taking them, the point is you're trying to get there. I'm a father of two, and I was never angry for my, at my girls while they were toddlers for not being able to run the 100 meters or to do a three-minute mile, or anything like that. Rather, I clap and I cheer as they fumble and fall and, and towards me with their wee past-the-shaped legs. And I celebrate every step that they took, because I knew with every step they took, there was joy in their face, and I wanted them to know that I was delighting in every step that they were taking, and finding joy in because I wanted to encourage them to keep taking steps. Because that's what a father does. They rejoice in their children's baby steps. And some of you need to hear this said to you this morning. God is pleased with every step 
faith-filled step that you make towards him, however small. Do what you can. Do what you know to be right with Scripture. And if you truly believe that he is worthy, the rest will come in time. Number two, old loves are defeated by greater loves. How do you take the baby steps away from sin? Many of us were taught as children that sin is a set of behaviors to avoid. You don't steal, you don't lie, you don't be jealous, you don't, and it's these. If that was true, it would follow that with a little bit of exertion, with a little bit of grit, any bad habit can just be stopped like that. And perhaps you've been trying to do that. Every computer has a password or every time you spend time with um, a girlfriend or boyfriend, you, you know, you're, you're in groups or but no matter what you do or, or how, how accountable you try to be, it feels like there's still this monster inside your chest trying to get out. It's like, I'm trying to fight it, but why is this beast not, not getting smaller or going away? See, sin is a problem of what we love long before it's a problem with what we do. And as I have fallen in love with Jesus over the years, as, as my love goes deeper, as my appreciation, as my understanding gets deeper, a funny thing started to happen. My love for these other things that seemed, to, seemed so attractive to me have lost some of their shine. I'm not saying that all their grips have disappeared, but what I'm saying is they don't have as strong a hold as they once did. Consequently, that grip that once seemed so impossible to escape, that battle that seemed so impossible to win has subsided. It doesn't mean I'm immune from temptation. It doesn't mean that there are not other battles that still need to fight. But whenever I have a greater love for God, these lesser loves tend to fade away. Look, by all means, flee sin. As you flee those lesser loves, make sure you run though to a greater love. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Run away from anything that stimulates youthful lusts, but instead pursue righteous living, faithfulness and love and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Sin is conquered by bigger loves, not bigger muscles. Number three, it's not about heaven. It's about God. Why should someone get saved? It should be a simple enough question, but many Christians answer it really badly because many Christians will say something along the lines of, you should get saved so that you can go to heaven, which is true. Absolutely, there is a heaven to win and there is a hell to avoid and to shun, but is that all that we can offer? Uh, why should you get saved? Well, forget about this life. You're going to have to write that one off, but the next life's going to be really good. 1 Peter 3, 18 tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. God. The sweetest and fullest punchline of the gospel is that we get God. And, and I can't tell the boys and girls, we get him now. We get him now. Now, heaven will be a fuller, more, more, more amazing experience and a full revelation of God in our lives. But we get him now. The moment you get saved, Christ comes in and we know him. 
And so it starts right there. And then the God who draws near, the God who never leaves us or forsakes us, the God who loves us and leads us, the God who saves the crushed in spirit. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good right now. That's the reward. That's the prize. It's one that starts right now. That's the treasure. It's not a place. It's a person. The triune person of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Number four. Let's, let's finish. Chase your dreams. And I can see by some of your faces, you're thinking, Jeff, that's not very churchy. It's not very Christian. I'm pretty sure that's not in the Bible. Which I think is a real shame that you don't think that it's in the Bible. Because if we ask, if we say that we are to not chase our dreams, to me that says that we are painting a picture of a God who will give us dreams and will give us ambitions and goals and, and, and talents and, and abilities and heart for, for, for projects and for charities and for missions. And, for th- and he gives us this heart for things and then says, ha, but you're not allowed to do them. You have to go be an accountant. Apologies to anyone who dreams of being an accountant. All right. We're praying for you. Remember at the start when I was talking about the kids making the paper towers in, in Youthquake? It really doesn't matter if you choose to go after a job as a social media star on YouTube or a librarian or a restaurateur, a nurse, or a geologist. The job itself is not as important as the type of person you are going to be in that job. Get the foundations right. After that, if there is room, there is room for you to pursue the godly girl or the godly guy. To say, to remain single if that's what you feel you want to do. God's will for your life is sanctification according to 1 Thessalonians 4 to enjoy Him more fully, to live more holy lives, to invite more people into the joy that you have in Christ. It's not a lifestyle He gives you. He gives you Himself. And once the broader will of God for you is plain, to know Him and Him more fully, and the power of His resurrection in our lives, the pressure lessens so significantly on the specifics. Trust in Christ. Take a baby step and then ask for wisdom as you move forward. Because according to the Great Commission, he says, I am with you even to the very end of the the age. So how's the foundation, folks? What is your life built on? What What would cause everything to crumble if it was taken away? Is it God? Is it God? If the sun goes away from the sky, the solar system dies. Nothing else can stay in place without the sun. So I'm asking, if we were to take God out of the picture in your life, would would everything just take on fine tomorrow morning? You go to work, you you hang out with your friends, you do this, you do and nothing really changes? It's, um, let me just, in Revelation, in the church to Sardis, chapter 3. He says, I know your works, and you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. That terrifies me as a pastor. Terrifies me. 
that you can have a church and the car park is full and the calendar is full of activities and the auditorium is full and people are singing and people are talking and people are... And yet when God would look at it, you have the outward appearance. But it's not real. My job, primarily as the pastor of this church, is to make sure that that is not our church. And that happens when the people of this church are in Christ. Not just in church, but in Christ. Folks, what is your life built on? Does everything in your life orbit around him? Do you think he's worthy of that honor? Is he worthy of that place? He is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,